0: It is a great honor to be here. I am always humbled by the opportunity to lead a group of people in singing praises to our great Savior. It's just a joy. And the only thing that could top that is being able to then preach to them God's Word. So I'm I'm a very happy man tonight. What I'm going to be speaking on is living before the King of Glory. If you have a Bible, open to Psalm 24. It is a real delight to be here in Australia for the first time. I love the sight of Sydney from the plane coming in. And I love it on the ground as well. Uh, But most of all, I love the people that I've met and uh, hope to meet many more. Uh, It just makes me aware of I mean, anytime you go to a part of the world that you've never been to, it makes sure of how big God is, and how He's very present everywhere. Uh, So great for that. Staying with the Taylors and having just a great time, especially hanging out with their children, Josh and Amy and Lydia, who was kind of passed out before I even started speaking. I won't take that personally. Um, You may have heard of A. W. Tozer. He was uh, an author and a pastor of the previous century. Wrote over 30 books is probably best known for his classic, The Knowledge of the Holy, to study the attributes of God. And it begins with this sentence. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Actually, what the most important thing about us is not what we think about God, but what God thinks about us. That's the most important thing. But Tozer's words are still relevant to us. He's saying that everything we do is affected and shaped and governed by our view of God. So if we think God isn't all-powerful, we'll have a hard time praying. Why pray to a God who's not all-powerful? If we think God is like a forgetful grandfather just kind of excuses things and misses a lot of stuff. We'll just do whatever we want. If we think that God isn't for us, we won't trust him. We'll, We'll be filled with anxiety and fear. If our thoughts about God are right, we'll reap untold benefits. And if our thoughts about God are wrong, we will pay the consequences. All of us, at different times and in different ways, have wrong thoughts about God. And we want to have right thoughts about God. If we're going to live before the King of glory, we want to have right thoughts about Him. Now, we can Romans one twenty says that we can just look at creation and learn about God. We can learn about His eternal power and His divine nature. But it's in the Bible, it's in the Word of God that God reveals Himself most clearly to us. And while we can't find everything we might want to know about God in His Word, we find everything we need. So the Bible may not be comprehensive in terms of everything we can know, but it's sufficient. So it's there where we're going to go to learn about the King of Glory. And we're going to turn to Psalm 24 because the Psalms teach us so much about who God is and how we relate to Him, how we're to relate to Him. The Psalms teach us how to laugh before God, how to cry before God, how to mourn, how to rejoice before God. They teach us how to live before God, And Psalm 24, in particular, teaches us how to live before God as the king of glory. Now, a little background before we read it. It was written by King David probably when the Israelites were bringing the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God was manifested, back to Jerusalem. It had been captured by the Philistines, returned to the Israelites, but left in the town of Kirith-Jerim for 20 years. And now they're bringing it back to Jerusalem, where it's supposed to be. It was a military triumph, kind of. I mean, God did everything, but they were happy. They were bringing the ark of God back. It was a time of celebration, or at least it was the second time. Because the first time they brought it back, 2 Samuel 6, it was a disaster. They failed to follow God's commands for how they were to handle the Ark of God. He said that only the Levites were supposed to carry the Ark. So when Uzzah, one of the men who was driving the the oxen, when he saw that the Ark of God was was falling, he reached out his hand so that it wouldn't touch the ground, and God struck him dead. And what was a celebration turned into a time of mourning. Uzzah's problem was he thought that his hand was cleaner than the dirt. And in reality, it wasn't. It's not before a holy God. So David learned a lesson from that, and he's bringing back the ark again. And this time, there is celebration, and there is victory, and there is triumph. And it's it's very possible that he wrote this psalm for that occasion. And what we're going to learn from this psalm is that to live rightly before the king of glory, we must view him rightly. To live rightly before the king of glory, we must view him rightly. It's similar to what Tozer was saying. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So let's read it. The Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's ask God to help us. God, we thank you that we have been able to sing your praises tonight. Enjoy your presence among us. And we thank you that you're here to speak to us through your word. I ask that you help me communicate your thoughts, your heart from your word, and open our ears to hear and our eyes to see. Jesus died and risen from the dead. Glorious, beyond all glory. So that our lives might be changed, and so that we might live before you as the King of glory. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to divide the psalm into four sections. We're going to look at each section. Each one challenges a misconception we have about God. And here's the first. The King of glory is sovereign. Verses 1 and 2. The King of glory is sovereign. It's hard to go anywhere today in our environmentally sensitive culture without being reminded that humans are responsible to care for the planet. We're told that it's our greatest resource and we're in danger of depleting its riches. And that's, that's good to hear. But who does the earth really belong to? It's not ours. We read it right here. The earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof. How much of the earth? The fullness thereof, or everything in it. That includes those who dwell therein, the world and those who dwell therein. Everything belongs to the Lord. Every living person is the Lord's. And in verse 2, we read, "...for," which means it's connected to what was just said, "...for He has founded it upon the seas." Why does God own everything? God owns everything because He created everything. That's why He owns everything. He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. References the story of creation in Genesis 1. God owns everything because He created everything. And so whatever you believe about the way the earth was created... Whether you, whether, you was, whether you believe it was a literal six days or thousands of years, we must not miss the main point. God created everything, so he owns everything. A man named Abraham Kuyper said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! It means he owns everything. Why does he own everything? He created everything. This is more than just theology, a theological observation. The fact that God created and owns everything means we're accountable to Him. It means that every, every person living is accountable to God. Psalm 33 verses 8 and 9 make, make that direct connection. It says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him for He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So everyone is to fear the Lord because God created everything. So these two verses challenge our limited views of God. We can have a limited views of God. Many times God seems big when things are going well. God, thank you, you're so great, you're so good. And very small when things are going badly. Like, God, why can't you do anything about this? What, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Maybe our God shows up when we need Him, and He disappears when it's inconvenient to have Him around. Well, neither of those are the God of the Psalms or the God of the Bible. He doesn't change, and He doesn't go away. He is here to stay. He owns everything because He created everything. Now, that flies in the face of what what our internet-savvy culture tells us. You know, in the age of the internet, in the age where tolerance is the ultimate virtue, where defining God is increasingly a matter of personal interpretation and majority opinion, the Bible confronts that. This, these verses confront that. All ideas about God or anything our world tells us are equally valid, worthy of consideration. Unacceptable. Sat next to a guy on the plane from L.A. to Sydney, who I found at the end uh, was very atheistic. Asked <laughs> my spiritual background. I'm v- I'm atheistic, very atheistic. I said, so do you go on like atheist websites and you know? He so, said, no, no, don't do that, do that. So I just believe that you got to really believe in what you believe in. Okay, I guess, I guess that makes sense. I really believe in what I believe in. Um, so we had this brief conversation about where he was. But his, his thought was, I get to do what I want. I own my life. And, of course, that's what an atheist has to believe. Because there's no one over you. There's no one who controls you. But, again, God speaks into that. He says, you know what? I do own you because I created you. The world tells us there's no absolute truth, just your truth and my truth. Because we view God through our own circumstances and experiences. God is as big as our thoughts about Him. And that is not the psalmist's view. God isn't some local deity, a God that that we choose from various options. That was the case in, in when this psalm was written in ancient Israel's time. They had gods for everything. You know, God for fertility, God for agriculture, God for finances, God for health, God for sex, God for money. So you, you, just, you just choose your gods. Well, in this David writes, no, that's not true. That's not true. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. He owns everything for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He owns it. There's one God. There's one way to relate to Him. One scholar expressed it this way. He says, Unquestionably, the supreme kingship of Yahweh, or God, in which He displays His transcendent greatness and goodness, is the most basic metaphor and most pervasive theological concept in the Psalter, as in the Old Testament generally, this fact that God is the supreme king. It provides the fundamental perspective in which man is to view himself, The whole creation, events in nature and history and the future. The whole creation is his one kingdom. To be a creature in the world is to be a part of his kingdom and under his rule. To be a human being in the world is to be dependent on and responsible to him. And to proudly deny that fact is the root of all wickedness. The wickedness that now pervades the world. He's just saying that to deny the fact that God is the supreme king is the root of all wickedness. So whenever I'm talking to someone about their life and what's going on, the problems they're facing, the difficult situations, one question I always ask that brings a clearer perspective is where is God in this picture? Where's God in your thinking? What, what do you think he's doing? What do you think God is doing And then I tell him, I'll tell you what he's doing. He's ruling over the world. He owns. He's working out his purposes and his plans, which no man can thwart. He's accomplishing everything he intended to do before the creation of the world. He's working to bring his people good and to bring glory to his name. And you can trust him because he owns everything. He's in charge of everything. And so quickly we lose sight of that fact that God truly is sovereign. He owns it all. This is God's world. We're we're accountable to Him. Nothing happens apart from His oversight. And if we know Him rightly, if we're to know Him rightly, we can't have limited views of His sovereignty. So He's sovereign. The King of glory is sovereign. Second thing we see, the King of glory is holy. This is verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? Now, Jerusalem was elevated, and it was characteristic of the places where God met with His his people in the Old Testament. He met with them at a high place. So the question of who shall ascend the hill of the Lord is a natural one. And when we read, who shall stand in His holy place? Standing in the holy place replies, permanence. So So what the psalmist is asking is how do we get to God and stay there? How do we get to God and stay there? And it's a relevant question because when the ark was first returned to Israel in 1 Samuel 6, 70 men looked upon the ark of the Lord and God struck them dead. So this, again, isn't just a theoretical question. Hey, let's let's try and figure out who can ascend the hill of the Lord. 70 guys had just died. And so th- they really want to know. This is an important question. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in His presence, stand in His holy place? Because it, it doesn't look like many people can. Who's able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? What kind of individual is worthy to stand in the presence of the sovereign King? So if we get the first two verses right, we'll understand why, why this question is being asked. God, if God's not just a grandfather who's forgetting things, if he's the sovereign king, how can we get to know him? Well, the psalmist says, well, this is the kind of person who can come near to God. He who has clean hands. It's talking about the things we do, our actions, things that people can see. We do the right things. Someone who does the right things. He who has a pure heart. We not only do right, we are right. This is what only God can see, the things that no one else but God can see. One who's going to stand in God's holy place must not lift up his soul to what is false. See that in verse 4, or empty. When the Bible uses the term lift up his soul, in the Psalms that always refers to God. We lift up our souls to God. It's an act of worship that speaks of our deepest desires and affections and influences. It's talking about the things we love. So the psalmist says, The person cannot love something false, something other than God. And then finally, if we're to send the hill of the Lord, we must never swear deceitfully. We must never lie or represent things in an untruthful way to others. So... That one verse covers our actions, our thoughts, our motives, and our words. What we do, what we think, and what we say. What we are in relation to God and what we are in relation to others. In other words, it covers pretty much everything. So so the person who ascends the hill of the Lord has to be like this. And, And the word that describes this is holy. They must be holy. Why? Because God is holy. And that's what Leviticus 19.2 says. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And to live rightly before the King of glory, we must view him rightly. This section of the psalm challenges our inconsistent views of God. First two verses challenged our limited views of God. This challenges our inconsistent view of God. We have a tendency to view worship as what we do in these meetings. We're worshiping the Lord, then we hear a a message. More specifically, what we do when we sing. But worship is not simply about songs and meetings. It's about the way we live before God. It's not a mood. It's not an emotional experience or a musical event. Although, thank God for emotions and songs and musical events. But that's not what worship is defined as. Worship is the way we live our lives. It's the thoughts we think. It's the words we say. Ethics is never merely about morals, about doing the right thing or not doing the wrong thing. It's never just a matter of knowing and following the right rules. Our conduct and our thoughts, the way we live, are determined by whose we are and who we worship. And because God is sovereign over the whole earth, what we do outside meetings matters just as as much as what we do inside meetings. So coming on Sundays or coming on Saturday nights and singing passionately is great, but they don't make up for unholy living. Our lives are meant to draw attention to the greatness of God as much as our songs do. We don't want to stop singing passionately. We just want to live passionately. And so, so let's look again at this verse, these four requirements of those who are, to, to, who are able to ascend the hill of the Lord and, and just allow the Holy Spirit to, to show us where we might fall short. So we have to have clean hands to ascend the hill of the Lord. Do your interactions with God, with others, sorry, meet God's standards? Do do, do we do things right, not compared to the person next to us or the people around us, but in God's eyes? Are our words to our spouse or our children or our friends always gracious, 1 Timothy 2.8 says we're to lift up holy hands to the Lord. Are we ever selfish? Are we ever unkind? When you're with others, are you always looking to serve them joyfully? All this is talking about clean hands, holy hands. Do you ever act hypocritically doing the opposite of what you tell others to do? If you held up your hands to God's searchlight, would they be clean? That's what... That's what living with clean hands is referring to. We have to have a pure heart. So Matthew 7, 21 and 22, Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. I'm guilty of every one of those in my heart. Just just reading that list there. A pure heart. We aren't to lift up our souls to what is false or empty. What really satisfies you? What really satisfies you? What do you go to when you feel needy? Is it God? Or is it the passing pleasures of this world? Is it His Word or is it shopping or food or magazines or music or a beautiful home or sports or movies or computer games or money or sex? Where do you go for refreshment and restoration? That's what you're lifting up your soul to. Where, where, whatever you think is fully going to satisfy you. And if it's not God's, doesn't mean that God doesn't want us to enjoy the good gifts He's given, us, given to us. Just means he doesn't want us to see them as our ultimate satisfaction. When we're tired and worn out, and yes, we need sleep, but what do we think is really going to restore our souls? Do we lift up our souls to what is false? And we're to love the truth, finally. Do not swear deceitfully. Do we ever exaggerate? Do we ever leave out important details when we're telling a story? Do we love reality from God's perspective? Do we really love it? Do we ever swear deceitfully? How consistent is our view of God? Do we we think God allows anyone to approach him? He can't. He's holy. But, But who can attain to that standard? I mean, I'm convicted as I'm reading through it. And I've done this message a number of times. We're not that person. Is David saying that we must perfectly obey the law of God to obtain a right standing before God? No. Which is why the third thing we see about the King of Glory is this. The King of Glory is not only holy, the King of Glory is merciful. King of Glory is merciful. Same David who wrote this would later on lust after another man's wife, sleep with her and have her husband killed. And without in any way minimizing God's call for us to pursue holiness, this psalm is telling us that God Himself will and must provide our holiness. And here we see one of the many verses in the Psalms that points to Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah. Read verse 5. It says, "He, this person we've just been speaking about, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation." Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. We receive righteousness or vindication from the God of our salvation or the God who saves us. And the call to holiness in the Old and the New Testament is always preceded by a reminder of God's covenant love that delivered us from His judgment Purchased our forgiveness and made us his people. And it's because God is the God of our salvation that he can vindicate us, that he can pour out his righteousness upon us. We aren't ascending the hill of the Lord on our own merits or on our own accomplishments. We're not standing in his presence because we're worthy to. Those who know God want to be like Him. They want to have clean hands. They want to have a pure heart. They don't want to lift up their souls to what is false. They don't want to swear deceitfully, but they know that there must be someone else who has done all those things because they will never do them on their own. And so this points to the salvation that only God can provide for us in His Mercy. It speaks of His justifying and sanctifying grace. Holiness and mercy aren't in opposition to one another. They're meant to go together. And as we have known God's mercy, we want to be holy like Him. Don't get that wrong. Don't confuse that. Don't think that because we're so holy, we can get God's mercy. We won't. And as we'll see more clearly in the final part of Psalm 24, all the glory for having clean hands and a pure heart goes to the Lord, not to us. Charles Spurgeon commented on this passage. He says, It must not be supposed that the persons who are thus described by their inward and outward holiness are saved by the merit of their works. But their works are the evidence by which they are known. The present verse shows us that in the saints grace reigns and grace alone. So we don't cut out verse 4 from our Bibles. We leave it there. We just understand it in the proper perspective, and the proper order. God is the God of our salvation. And then verse 6, he says, Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And how kind of the Lord to remind us that we worship the God of Jacob, a man so much like us, a man who was a deceiver, a conniver, but one whom God... Identifies with. God chose to bless. Even Jacob enabled him to say, and enabled Jacob to say, "I have seen the face of God." It's amazing. That's the God we worship, the God of Jacob. I'm so glad that's there. You no, know, it's not. Even if it was the God of Moses. I mean, Moses most of his life did all the right things and you know, failed at the end. But you know, the God of Jacob. Jacob was a mess. He he was, it's not a pretty story. You know, all the things he did. But that's who God identifies with. That's who you're worshiping, the God of Jacob. So this section challenges our ungracious views of God. When we think God is harsh. No, we will receive blessing from the Lord. Not blessing from our friends and family. Oh, that's great. Not blessing from the government or a rich benefactor. That'd be great too. But blessing from the Lord. And that's better. It's always better. And as righteousness from God our Savior, is there any better righteousness? Is there any other righteousness? Is there any better promise than knowing that we will receive vindication, righteousness from God our Savior? We will be called righteous in God's eyes because Jesus Christ came and bore the burden of our sin and shame. It's good news. It's good news. And if you live with a sense of guilt and despondency and despair and feeling like you never, never measure up, well, that's true. You don't. And you never will. But there is one who has measured up. He has clean hands, pure heart, never swore deceitfully. And it's because of Him that we can ascend the hill of the Lord. Okay, so David has proclaimed how we can come to God. Now we're about to hear and proclaim how God has come to us. And if we want to live before the King of Glory, there's one thing we need to see. And that is not only that the King of Glory is sovereign and holy and merciful, but the King of Glory is victorious. That's what we're going to see in these last four verses. The King of Glory is victorious. Now, I've read this psalm for years and... I, whenever I would get to this part in the psalm, it would always be kind of an awkward transition. And, you know, you're talking about to seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. I'm thinking, where did the gates come from? Like, part of my job is to evaluate, evaluate songs. And so, I mean, people send me songs and I like critique them. And You know, if someone sent me this song, I'd say... You know, it was going really well up until that point. You know, what I'd do, I'd probably... Like, you'd either have to mention, like, the gates beforehand. So, like, work a little gates in there before. And then it'd, it'd be okay. But it's just like a, a whiplash right there. It's just like, the gates! Hey, the gates! Where are the gates coming from? Just go back and work on it. Well, fortunately, God has never asked me for my thoughts <laughs> on how he should write songs. So I, I try to learn from God rather than have him learn from me. Because we're not called to evaluate God's Word. It's God's Word that evaluates us. And so as, as I was studying this psalm, I, I just kept thinking, what, what is this? What is this? Well, this is what it is. We're moving from contemplating what we do to contemplating what the Lord has done. And oh, what a change of view it is. What a change of perspective. We read about Yahweh, the sovereign king, entering into Jerusalem, and he's bringing salvation, blessing, and victory to his people. You see gates metaphorically lifting up their heads in joyful expectation that the king of glory is arriving after a triumph in battle. We picture gates and doors of Jerusalem swinging wide, or perhaps maybe God's people welcoming him with victory, with shouts of celebration. And as we look at this, that it was probably done as, as a response where one group was saying things, another group was saying something else, one group was saying things. So I, I want us to do that just as a, just to kind of get the sense of what's happening here. So like right down here, I'm going to divide this, this group. You're, you're group one and you're group two over here. And I think we have this on projected. Can we get this projected? Do we have this projected? If not, then this whole thing is for not. Do we? Yes, all right. So here's how it's going to work. You read the stuff in bold and then you read the stuff in italic. You know, we better stand to do this. I'm just sensing it's not going to work unless we stand. Because they wouldn't be sitting down saying this. They, they're, they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem and, and they're, they're trying to build faith. They're trying to impart faith for what's taking place. This isn't just something we're doing. This is something the Lord has done. So we're going to start with you all. And you say it, say it with energy. Alright? Lift up your head. Who is Well tell them. The Lord, All right. Everyone, the Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. Amen. Who said Australians can't get into it? Okay, let's sit down. All right, that was good. That was good. There's an anticipation. There's an expectation. There's a realization that God has done something. Now, when we talk about the Lord... It's capitalized, which means this is Yahweh we're talking about. The great I Am. The sovereign holy God is coming into the holy city, Jerusalem, triumphant and victorious, showering blessing on His people. He's coming not to fight against His people, but to fight for them. He is strong and mighty in battle. He's the Lord of hosts. Now, that's all well and good. But don't you think that Israel must have struggled when they were reading this psalm as they were being defeated by the Philistines and then the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and eventually being taken into exile in Babylon, the temple destroyed. And even when they returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, there must have been struggles in their hearts, questions. Is this what the Lord's victory looks like? Is, has the King of Glory come in? If so, when? Where is he? If he's so strong and mighty, why do we continue to suffer? I mean, they had to be asking those questions. And you might be asking the same questions. Or maybe you have asked those questions. Or maybe you will ask those questions. If God's so mighty in battle, why am I going through what I'm going through? Why do I have this disease? What? Why isn't my son or my daughter following the Lord? King of glory has come in. Why did I lose my job? If he's so triumphant and glorious, where was he when my child was molested? Why isn't this relationship working out? Why did my child die? Why did my spouse leave me? Where is the Lord strong and mighty? of glory. The Lord of hosts. Where is He now? God never intended us to limit the meaning of these verses to what took place in ancient Israel. We start there, but we don't end there. These verses don't simply refer to David bringing the ark back to Jerusalem, even though that was a great Celebration. There was another time, hundreds of years later, when a king of glory was entering Jerusalem. We read about it in Matthew 21, 9 through 11. That king of glory's name was Jesus. And this is what Matthew says And the crowds that went before him. Isn't that ironic? The Jews' answer was right, but it was incomplete. They didn't know the full answer, but it was right here all the time in Psalm 24. Who is this? It's the King of Glory. He doesn't look like a King of Glory. He is the King of Glory. This section challenges our incomplete views of God. We think rightly about God to a certain point, but then we stop. We've got to think about Him all the way for who He is, for who He has revealed Himself to be. Jewish tradition says that Psalm 24 was typically recited on the first day of each week. So as Jesus was entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the first day of the week, the priests may well have been inside the temple reciting who is this king of glory Hebrews 2:14 and 15 tells us who that king of glory was it tells us that he came to destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery Through His death, His substitutionary atonement, and His glorious resurrection, He revealed Himself as the Lord of hosts, strong and mighty, the true King of glory. And His resurrection was more than just a display of raw supernatural power. It was the single event that assured us that His payment for our sins had been accepted by His Father, that God's wrath is satisfied, that death has been defeated, that the powers of darkness have been overcome, that sin's dominion has been broken, and the life of the age to come has dawned. He is the King of glory. Which leads to a third scene that this psalm refers to. And that is the King of Glory returning to heaven. Okay, picture this. For centuries the church has read Psalm 24 on Ascension Sunday. To the early Christians the psalm foreshadowed the cries of heaven as the God-man Jesus Christ returned from atoning for the sins of the world having redeemed a people for God's possession from every tribe, language, people, and nation. It's the ultimate victory and the ultimate triumph. And you know what? It's already happened. It's already happened. There there are the angels and the living creatures around the throne. (laughs) It's, It's hard to conceive of this. Jesus had existed on the throne before he became incarnate man, before he became an infant, now he's returning to heaven as the God-man. Fully God, fully man. And he has accomplished what his Father sent him to do. So can you imagine this being said then? Some of the four living creatures, a couple of them said, Who is this King of Glory? It's the Lord! He's returning! He accomplished what he was sent to do! He's redeemed a people for the Father's glory. He did it. He died. He rose from the dead. He bore the wrath that was due them for their sins. He fully bore it. He's risen victorious. And now He's returning to ever intercede for them until everything's consummated. He returns to the new heavens and the new earth. And it's all done. Can't believe it. I can see them talking to each other. It's the King of glory. He's coming back. It's happened. It's happened already. It's already occurred. We can tend to be overly consumed with what we do here. What we accomplish, what we achieve, what we experience, what we express. We can live with the mindset that God is depending ultimately on us to pull his plan off. It's It's up to us. He's not. He's not depending on us. And it's a good thing. God's not taking risks. I hear people sometimes say, well, you know, God took a, a risk when He used us. He doesn't take risks. He's not depending on us. Worship, this life, living before the King of glory, is about celebrating the victory that God has already brought about through our great King Jesus, crucified and risen from the dead. He is the representative man who has the clean hands and the pure heart, who has never, never lifted his soul to what is false, has never sworn deceitfully. And because of Jesus, we can ascend that hill. Because of Jesus, we can stand in that holy place because He has paid our debt. He has suffered in our place. He has borne the the punishment for our sins. He has ransomed us from hell. He's defeated our enemies and reconciled us to God. And because He's done all those things, we can can trust His sovereign goodness. We can trust Him. Now, there may be some of you here who don't see God as sovereign over your life. I can tell you this. In the end, God wins. We already know that. And right now, He's offering you the greatest gift you will ever receive. His gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ. Who suffered, died, and rose from the dead to take the punishment you deserved. But if you know the Lord, God tells you to look to your King of glory. To let Him enter in. The one who is mighty in battle. Open up the gates of your heart to receive Him in His awesome glory. Let's not settle. Let's not settle for inconsistent, limited, ungracious, incomplete views of God. God has made it possible for each of us to live rightly before the King of glory. But we must view Him rightly. We must be confident in His sovereignty. We must pursue His holiness. We must be grateful for His mercy. And we must rejoice in the great victory Of our Redeemer. Whatever trials or disappointments. Or challenges or opposition. You are facing right now. Or will face. God who owns the earth. And everything in it. Including you. Has redeemed the people for his glory. His plans will not fail. His purposes cannot fail be thwarted. So no matter how hopeless it looks to you, and we can get to some very low places. We can get to a a place that's so low we, we think about taking our life. Remember the King of Glory. Keep your eyes on the King of Glory. He is the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord Almighty. He is the risen and reigning King of glory. He is the King who has come and one day who will come again. And what a day that will be. Let's pray. Father, we we are in awe of You as our great King of glory. Jesus, we are in awe of You as our great King of glory. We thank you for your word, which gives us the assurance that we never have to doubt. We never have to wonder. We never have to live in unbelief. You are the King of glory, who is sovereign, who is holy, who is merciful, who is victorious. And you will demonstrate your victory in our lives. Not simply by taking the difficulties away, but by making us like Jesus. And we thank you for that. We thank you that one day we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Our eyes will behold (coughs) the King of glory. Make us long for that day. Make us prepare for that day. With great joy and faith as we keep our eyes on you.